Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Time to board the weekly flight on Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes. Welcome to this week's show. We're not sure where we're going to go, but we'll try to make it a fun ride. And my colleague, Ben Baldanza, certainly has the talent for making it fun. Thanks, Chris. Hello to all of our listeners. We're going to have an interesting conversation with our guest, John Heimlich, the chief economist for Airlines for America. But let's cover off a few news items first. Chris, if you'll take the controls. I'm on it. Here we go. I guess what is old is new again. Uh, with COVID cases spiking because of the Delta variant, mass requirements on the ground are back in style. The Biden administration said they will keep international travel restrictions in place for the time being after a fair amount of hope that they would be lifted soon. So far, there's no impact to what we're seeing with crowded airplanes and airports and premium prices for rental cars and hotels. But Ben, what are you feeling and thinking about all this? Chris, I'm just nervous about this. On the one hand, the positive side is that people who are vaccinated seem to have relatively small impacts if they are then infected with the Delta variant. And I say that because data suggests that there's been a bit of a delinking between case counts and hospitalizations, or certainly case counts and death. But I'm nervous that we still have a lot of unvaccinated people in the United States. And the infection rate of this Delta variant is encouraging legislators and others and even local officials to think maybe we need to move back toward more of a shutdown thing. I was understanding, but certainly disappointed in the reality when the CDC said for schools this fall, they expected that teachers and students would all be masked again. And I said, oh man, it's gotten back to this now. That was kind of my thought. In terms of airline travel, I kind of understand in a way why it's not impacted travel yet. I mean, the travel out there is leisure travel. People are going to see friends and family. They're taking vacations that they missed all last year. I was at an event just a few days ago. I didn't fly for it, but a number of people did fly to it. It was just physically close to where I am, that there were, you know, 50 or 60 people there. You had to be vaccinated to go to the event, but it was an event that hadn't happened for a couple of years. And so everybody was really encouraged to be back to this. I What I really hope, Chris, is that we understand what this Delta variant really does in terms of risks of infection and what it means for people who get this. And obviously, we want to get this under control. What it seems to me is that we're clearly not going to eradicate this virus, but we've got to learn to live with it in a way that we've learned to live with other things like the flu and other things, that it's going to be there, but we've got to get society protected. We've got to understand the safe ways to behave within that. 
There's a natural seasonality reduction in traffic when we get into September and October anyway. So we're likely to see traffic drop at the end of August just because of that. But we're going to have to see if we can parse out between what is the normal drop because of seasonality and what is the drop because of the Delta variant expansion. As we get into the end of the year holidays, it's going to be really interesting to see what the guidance is and what people are willing to do in terms of seeing family around Thanksgiving and end of the year holidays. And that's going to say a lot, I think, about how we're going to start 2020. Yeah, I think that's fair. It'll be interesting to see, specifically in the airline business, where some of the major carriers or even some of the smaller carriers and and also some of the uh, support industries and structures like airports, where are people going to land on uh, vaccination requirements? Disney just announced that uh, they're requiring all of their employees to be vaccinated. Um, I think you're going to see some other, I don't like the word mandates, but your requirements by other employers. And so I think we'll have to watch that space as it relates to the airline business. And also my guess is I don't think you're going to see the Association of Flight Attendants and other union groups advocating for the any relief on mass requirements in September like they were scheduled to go away. So we'll just have to watch that space and see where it all plays out. More news in a moment, but thanks to TA Connections, which partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. So Ben, uh, we've talked about this several times uh, as listeners have written in about top tier loyalty status and what we think is going to happen for 2022 and beyond. But uh, Delta, in their bid to remain the favorite airline for business travel, extended loyalty elite status for their frequent flyers for another year through January 2023, along with flight credits and companion certificates and other perks. We've been guiding our listeners to give this some time and kind of wait for the back half of the year to see some activity. Were you surprised by the timing? And what does this say about their expectations on business travel for the rest of the year? I saw that, Chris. And while certainly happy for Delta frequent flyer members who get their status extended for a year, I saw this as a negative sign for how Delta's thinking about business travel because to extend loyalty status for another full year when we're only in July right now suggests that they're really trying to get ahead of the curve. My guess is they're saying, look, because of the Delta variant, because of what we're seeing out here, there is the risk that 2022 might also be weak in terms of business travel. And if there's going to be a smaller number of people traveling, we want to get a disproportionate share of that. So let's go out quickly. Let's capture as many of these people as we can with through the Frequent Fire program to keep them engaged, keep them incented to go travel again. 
the fact that they felt they needed to do that so soon and do it for a full year did surprise me somewhat. I was expecting something a little more tactical. For example, hey, fly two trips before December 2021 and earn your status for all of 2022 or something like that, a little call to action as opposed to just hang around and we'll give it to you. You know, United and American responded very strategically and just extended for their top, top tier and relatively small population for their global services and concierge key flyers. But earlier in the month, American was launching a promotion for any of their credit cards, any of their co-branded Affinity credit cards, spend $15,000 through the back half of the year on that card and extend your status no matter what it was through 2023. So like you said, they were the other carriers were trying to find other ways to incent their most loyal passengers if they couldn't fly to still earn the status, but but at least generate some business activity for the airline. So I, I was surprised that this happened so quickly. So Ben, let's pick up on this business travel theme for just a moment longer. The expanded relationship between Southwest Airlines and Sabre went live last week. There was a flurry of media coverage, at least here in the Dallas market, about how, quote, revolutionary, maybe, I don't know, more evolutionary this was, how it makes a a bigger play for Southwest for business travelers through their distribution agreement with Sabre. But Southwest fares have always been available to travel agents. They just haven't been, and they really still aren't available in online kind of comparison shopping channels. So what's different about this deal that our, our listeners should pay attention to? I think what's different about this deal, Chris, is both a recognition by Southwest and maybe a tonality of how they're thinking about their distribution. One of the things that Southwest has done since its beginning, is it's been a low-cost distributor of tickets by essentially asking all their customers to go to their lowest-cost distribution source, their own website, or initially their own call center. And even though you could buy tickets from travel agents, the travel agents who would buy a ticket for you on Southwest went through the Southwest website through a special portal that made sure they got credit for booking that ticket and such, but it was still sort of a web booking. I think with this new deal between Southwest and Sabre, immediately things don't change. It's not like Southwest fares, as you said, are going to be available everywhere. But I think it's a recognition by Southwest that they're not going to be able to live only on small business travel, but they are going to make a play for bigger corporate travel or a bigger share of corporate travel. And I think this coordination with Sabre is aligned with their idea of moving into Chicago O'Hare's airport and Bush Intercontinental Airport and other things they've done. They've for a long time been a high frequency carrier in and among big cities, which makes them attractive to businesses. And they've also been a very easy to use company without the fees that many other airlines have. All those things make them a natural attractor for some business travel. What they've really missed is the access everywhere to their fares and the broader global network that 
the Americans, Uniteds, and Deltas offer. So I think this deal with Sabre sort of suggests that they're thinking more and more of themselves as a more traditional airline that over time may need to think about distribution of their fares in a more traditional way. And with this alignment with Sabre may allow them to be able to access business traffic as it comes back a little bit easier. That's how I see it, Chris. Not as an immediate sort of strike to gain share really quickly, but in a positioning of the company within the distribution system to sort of over time compete a little stronger. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the fares have always been available, but like you said, frankly, it's been a hassle for a travel agent to book a Southwest ticket from their point of view compared to Others, just as far as a, a easy transaction within a GDS. And through the years watching these distribution fights and then makeups and whatever else uh, across carriers and GDSs, uh, you know, I've always been struck by why airlines want to make it so difficult when a customer has their credit card out to buy, take it. <laughs> <laughs> transact, right? Don't send them somewhere else. Don't turn them down. Don't disappoint them. If the hand is extended or now, you know, the click is ready to be made online, make it happen. So um, I think this is recognition for that. And, and then finally, one last news item, Ben. United continues on their buying spree as far as aircraft. First, it was 200 electric VTOLs from startup Archer, then supersonic planes from Boom, and then the 270 new narrowbodies from Boeing and Airbus. And now they announced they're buying 119-seat electric planes from Swedish startup Heart Aerospace. Is this a good idea? And how many more different kinds of planes and things that fly is United going to buy? Well, I think if you're an airline salesperson and you've not yet made a call on Scott Kirby and United Airlines, you're not really doing your job right now because <laughs> they've clearly got the checkbook out and they've got the mind open to say the world is changing and United wants to be a bit ahead of the curve. I think the electric VTOLs they did with Archer the supersonic planes from Boom and now these 19-seat electric planes are all kinds of aspirational and important buys in terms of thinking about how this industry is changing. It also gives United a great position among those who would want to pick on the industry for not being green enough and not caring about the environment enough to say, look what we're doing. We're putting our money into equipment that will be better for the environment and such. The 19-seat electric planes are interesting to me because that's a very small airplane. And those are planes that have traditionally been in a size category that have traditionally been flown by regional airlines. And I assume these would be as well. But the electric nature of them, if they turn out to be good airplanes and better controlled on the fuel side because of the electric nature of them, it could reopen some travel to really small cities because of these planes and might make it easier to sort of feed some of the bigger hubs. Although 
19 seats is a is a tough way to make business work because there just aren't enough seats you can sell to cover the costs of the plane and the pilots and the landing fee when you can take the fuel out of there or of course they're going to pay for the electricity in some way but presumably that would be less than the fossil fuel i think that's kind of interesting the most important thing about all this though i think chris is that just a couple of years ago united's fleet looked really terrible in the sense that they were really heavily weighted towards small regional jets for a huge percentage of their at least domestic capacity. They were really an airline that had a lot of you know, regional jets flying around the U.S. and big airplanes flying across the Pacific and Atlantic. And if you looked at the average gauge, meaning the average number of seats per airplane, they were notably below American and United because of that. And these orders are starting to change that. The big 270 airplane order is a big step toward that, using the 737 maxes to replace many of those 50-seaters. But then going down with the electric planes with a smaller size is interesting too. I just think there's a lot of thinking going on at United. They don't know what the future is going to look like, but what they're saying is we're going to be well prepared for almost anything. Time will tell whether all of these purchases make sense and whether the supersonic planes really ever get delivered and whether there's enough demand for those, whether EV tolls, the vertical takeoff and landing, which seems really great. The fact that you can get from inner cities to airports more quickly and things like that. It seems like the world would want that and get there. All these things are good ideas, but other than the 270 airplanes that they bought, which are known well, good airplanes that are going to fly a lot of things, all these other buys are just interesting buys to say in a changing world, United's going to be ready. You want to make a prediction whether Scott buys some hot air balloons too? So. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we should take a flyer on hot air balloons versus blimps. One of the two. <laughs> hey, I've, I've been uh, the, the uh, commandeer of a blimp uh, for Carnival Cruise Line for about a year and a half. Hopefully it's coming back, but uh, I even got into the blimp business. So Anyway, we'll be right back with John Heimlich from Airlines for America. But first, a pitch for our friends at Seabury Capital Group the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So listeners, we're going to shift from our talk about the news to our conversation with John Heimlich, the chief economist at Airlines for America, although we'll probably still keep talking about airline news in this part of the show. John is recognized as one of the smartest guys to not only analyze, but also explain what the heck is going on in the airline business. So we're thrilled to have him join us. Welcome, John. Thanks so much, Chris and Ben. Pleasure to be with you. John, let's start out by just telling us about your role as the chief economist at A4A. And what did you do before this illustrious role as well? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I started my aviation career almost exactly 25 years ago at United Airlines in Chicago. I was there four and a half years in a combination of uh, 
uh, financial planning and analysis and international and regulatory affairs, which is very good training for the kinds of work I do now. I, I joined A4A almost 20 years ago in April 2001 and became chief economist in sometime in 2004, I believe. And my role is basically to analyze or explain or write anything that has to do with an economic concept or data, really. I also have responsibility for uh, the business side of energy matters and energy policy, but it could be testifying, uh, writing speeches, reviewing other people's documents, doing cost-benefit analysis on legislative or regulatory proposals and, and monitoring the state of the industry and giving lots of presentations, responding to media inquiries. And just lastly, I'll say that uh, a lot of people just think about U.S. federal matters, but we get involved a lot in state and local matters, as well as international matters. But I probably spend as much of my time communicating either directly or indirectly with members of the media to respond to events of the day or explain what's happening or why it's important. So John, for those of us whose worst recollections of college or economics classes, uh, <laughs> your freshman year, what was the attraction to the profession and how do you build the models and the forecasts that um, you're confident enough to put out there? You know, I, uh, in, in college, it, it wasn't, I, I had thought about double majoring to include economics, but I struggled with learning economics in a classroom of 400 people, not only limited ability to ask questions, but to see what, <laughs> I'm going to date myself here, but see what then was a chalkboard. It was really in, in graduate school that I became more in, entranced with the field and particularly the airline industry. And I had a, I went into the career center and the deputy director of the career center asked me, when you pick up the newspaper, what stories do you like to read, John? And then that's when really things clicked for me and I was drawn to the airline industry and the economics were a big part. And I was, this was uh, the mid nineties and I early to mid nineties and I was reading a lot about goings on in the business. And I decided to take some classes at MIT in answer and support economics. And I decided to do my master's uh, paper on aviation tax policy. Pretty geeky, I know, but I was drawn to the business and then found out United was recruiting across the river at Harvard Business School and called the recruiter. And here I am talking to you. Well, you can't be too geeky for, for us and our <laughs> listeners. So that's don't, don't apologize for that. <laughs> Well, that's for sure. Hey, John, in your role, do you get to decide the kinds of things you study and research, or are you constantly getting all kinds of requests from all different constituencies, or maybe a little of both? Yeah, Ben, it's a great question. I, the answer is a little of both. Obviously, the top priority is responding to what uh, my senior leadership and our members need and, and want to know about and, and need an answer for. But I have a fair degree of latitude also when I'm not doing those things to research things that I think are of interest or anticipate what the next big question or topic might be and to tell a story. So I, I do have some latitude to develop a, a greater knowledge base on something, to look at the same data differently, tell a different story, probe deeper, decide, hey, we have a research gap here. Maybe we should commission a firm like Ipsos to survey the American public or 
Alternatively, maybe we should just develop uh, some survey questions to collect data directly from our membership. So proactively filling gaps I see in our research that could support later analysis is is an area where I have some latitude. But first and foremost, I need to meet the needs of our senior membership and our leadership. So I'm going to pivot a bit. You know, I always tell students as they're starting their career, get to know the business of whatever business you're in, get kind of understand what makes that company or that industry profitable, what drives its success. So let's talk about the business of the airline business right now. And we've been talking a fair amount about how you get business traffic back on board. You know, what do you think is going to be the biggest driver or, or, or the biggest drivers to uh, translate into uh more business travel. Yeah, definitely. It's the certainly the question du jour. And sadly, I think we have a little bump in the road with the spread of the Delta variant and, and some tick up in hospitalizations. But I think notwithstanding that minor setback, I think we're looking toward a meaningful pickup in business travel in the fall. Domestic and short-haul international will tend to come back first, then long-haul corporate. I think we've seen some small businesses come back before corporate. You know, Most of us think that actually getting those corporate employees back, at least to a degree, in their offices is an important precursor to a meaningful amount of business travel. Because I think generally, they're, notwithstanding um, policies on flexibility and telecommuting, uh, generally speaking... I think a lot of those large employers feel, look, if we can't, if we don't feel people putting our folks back in the office, it's hard to say we feel comfortable putting them on the road or in a foreign country to do business. And as, as you know, it's not just about the plane or even the airport. It's, you know, it's cars and taxis and Ubers and hotels and restaurants and the business meeting venue. And a lot of conferences aren't happening. So you know, one thing we'd like to see is the government itself to start traveling again. I think that would instill some confidence. And actually, those are meaningful numbers. Uh, you know, we know a lot of government agencies or, or congressional delegations, they're not doing a lot of travel. Uh, there are still limitations in some states on the number of people to occupy meeting rooms. And I think some people have a, a little concern, you know, confidence in uh I mean, not broadly in the economy, but a little bit uncertainty about their travel budgets. But I think getting people in the office and then for international, clearly, it's lifting some of these either unilateral or bilateral restrictions on travel because it doesn't matter how much demand there is. No one wants to quarantine 14 days or can afford either to be away from their family, their business, or spend that much money in a hotel when they're on a business trip. So that's more than one thing, but those are the things we're kind of monitoring, Chris. That's great, John. And my concern is that even if most or a lot of business traffic does come back, that even a small shortfall could have a big impact on the industry because at least the largest carriers in the U.S. are so dependent on that travel. And it takes a number of leisure travels to replace a single business travel in terms of the revenue component. So if the industry must live with greater dependence, at least on leisure traffic for some period of time, how do you think that would affect the industry? Yeah, that, that's, that's an important question and, and certainly more relevant for some business models than others. And I think the most important words you said were for some period of time. Hopefully this is a near-term phenomenon and 
eventually we get back to robust levels of business travel, and I, I do think we will. I do agree with you that will be some structural share missing. No one knows how, how sizable that share or how long it will be absent. And I, I think the answer is that that highlights why these cost containment efforts and these structural cost reduction programs are so important uh, concurrent with efforts to reorient airline networks and schedules. And they, they simply can't rest their laurels on, you know, say 2022 or 2023, we'll have the same revenues from the business traveler we once had. And, and that's, that's a key piece. And, and, and if anything, I think that environment's getting more competitive. For example, uh, Southwest's fuller participation in uh, some of the GDSs, uh, particularly with Sabre, their penetration into some, you know, places like uh, Chicago O'Hare, Houston Intercontinental, Miami-Dade, and then things like JetBlue going across the Atlantic. So the competitive landscape is by no means static. So look, the, the first thing I did, I think, yes, there were a lot of cuts, uh, cost cuts made during the initial months of the pandemic, but some of those will have to continue Unless, yeah, like like you said, unless they can generate enough from leisure. And I, I, that's another thing no one knows is uh, will the robustness of the leisure demand surge? Is that a temporary phenomenon or are we structurally higher for the next two years? I think, again, it's something they can't count on. So they're going to have to, to look at some cost controls as well. We'll have more with John Heimlich in just a moment, but first we want to take a break to remind you that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. So, John, uh, in our prep for this session, you also mentioned you've been working on jet fuel shortages and their effect on the industry. Can you tell us uh, what you've been learning and how this is going to affect the airline and business over the next few months and also consumer pricing? Yeah. So I think that what I have learned is a lot more about the significance of line history in a pipeline and also the fragility of the trucking network to keep our airports wet, so to speak. So on the pipeline side, as the economy has rebounded, especially in certain regions of the country, like out West, the pipelines have become full very quickly with gasoline, diesel demand, uh, jet fuel, heating oil, and the like. And when they're full, they go, especially in the summer peak for most fuels, they go on into something called allocation or in proration mode, meaning there's more demand to move liquids through the pipe than there is capacity. And so how do the pipelines uh, allocate that scarce capacity? Well, they do it based on each individual shipper's 12-month history of usage. And that's where the airline industry is in a real pinch because, or all users of jet fuel, really, that includes... Uh, military supply chain and general aviation. And obviously jet fuel volumes fell the most precipitously in the early months of the pandemic. 
much more so than gasoline and diesel, which recovered fairly quickly. And it took jet fuel longer to climb back. So over the last 12 months, our share is much lower than it was in the preceding 12 months, which means our entitled allocation to move jet fuel through the line. And uh, there's, there's one particular pipeline out west, for example, where one of the large airline ships on the line self-supplies and it, its allocations are down in August are 72% lower than they were in August 2019, even though some of the airports out there are seeing demand greater than they were two years ago for air travel and cargo. That's a big problem. And hence, you've seen a lot of news stories in, in the paper. And really, the only way you can uh, occasionally, the, the pipeline will hold uh, a small fraction of the line available for new shippers. So that's one possibility to claw back a jet fuel space. The second thing you can do is if there's a month uh, in the off peak when a pipeline goes off allocation, you can try to move as many barrels of jet through in that period to make up some lost ground. The problem is that's that's the exact time you don't need that much fuel because it's off peak. So so what do you do it? Where where do you store it? It's it's a dilemma. And we're going to be facing this in many parts of the country. And we filed an emergency petition to FERC on one particular report that we're still waiting to hear on to get some relief. Going to the point about the trucks, and this is a very uh, interesting phenomenon, which is, as, as we're all pretty aware, the leisure surge has taken place mostly at smaller airports. It's not big cities that have pipeline access. It's it's everywhere from um, Myrtle Beach to Bozeman, Montana, to Aspen, Colorado, West Yellowstone, Wyoming. These are the kinds of airports where we are seeing significantly greater air travel demand than we were pre-pandemic. And guess what? These locations are not just predominantly, but almost exclusively fed by truck. And we happen to be in a period where, as, as most people know, there are many industries and sectors struggling with supply chain areas, cars, semiconductors, uh, various parts, even furniture. I think I've even read Nikes. There, there are all kinds of supply chain disruptions, coffee. Well, we're no different. And although there's plenty of jet fuel being produced by refineries, Getting it to the airport has been challenging, and many truck drivers were let go or chose to retire during the pandemic. Also, DMVs and many truck driver training academies were temporarily uh, closed, and fuel trucking companies can't hire rookies uh, off the street. They need to be, there's a long lead time for training and credentialing, and they don't hire people with no experience. They, uh, someone who uh, drives a fuel truck typically has three to five years experience. And that means that those companies will hire them from other trucking companies once they get experience. So the whole hiring pipeline, no pun intended, for uh, trucking is stretched right now. And they're trying to hire as, as quickly and furiously as they can and we've been a little challenged by a lot of these trucks being repurposed to uh, or commandeered to fight some of the wildfires out west. So, and then there's there's you know roadside congestion or some of the storage terminals have long queues, so they're timing out. 
So look, this, this is uh, a challenge. And another thing we don't know, how quickly can they rehire? And the second question, again, is this surge uh, in leisure demand to these types of smaller truck-fed locations, is this something that we expect to see continue at a high level going forward? Or are travelers really getting the whole national park and beach thing out of their system and then will revert to normal uh, demand uh, profiles in the years ahead? John, We've been talking on this podcast, but you only have to turn on the news, too, to see that there are labor shortages in a lot of the U.S. as well. And we all know how important labor is to this industry. Have you done any work on this in terms of its effect on the airline's ability to grow and recover? I have not researched anything in terms of root causes, but we we sort of we have spent a lot of time explaining the labor shortages and and supply chain challenges as you know as any business when when demand recovers uh, very quickly it's hard for and it did very quickly it's hard for supply to uh, catch up and and clearly the payroll support program for the airlines uh, and their contractors was absolutely critical and made the problem i think much smaller uh, than it would have been otherwise. And it, it kept, uh, clearly, uh, most importantly, it kept pilots, flight attendants, mechanics uh, on, on the job. Uh, but there were people who took uh, voluntary separation or early retirement. And I think some of the headaches are uh, in our supply chain with private companies that were not eligible for PSP. And, and again, you know, we hear restaurants and banks, uh, other IC coffee shops, they're struggling to get people back uh, quickly enough. So, you know, I don't know the horizon. I know some of our member uh, carriers have announced big hiring plans in the last few days, and, and others have also uh, pulled back their September and beyond schedules a little bit to recognize that that they don't have enough workers to meet perhaps um, what they went in with in, in July. So, you know, we're all, we're all learning and we're trying to use technology automation wherever possible, but uh, there are a little bit of growing pains as we snap back to toward pre-pandemic schedules. I, I was struck again. I traveled uh, from DFW to Orlando this past week and back, and I was struck again about, as you were talking, John, the shortages of restaurant workers in airports and and customer service slash kind of wheelchair and and convenience employees um, they just are bringing major airports to a halt because people can't move either. There's always there's long lines at at airport concessions and restaurants and they're blocking the walkways of passengers and the passengers who need assistance can't get from gate to gate and it's just creating gridlock and. It's at that level that uh, airports are impacted. I think yep. there are two surprises that it's not limited to our industry. Uh, but one is the early success of the vaccine rollout, uh, but more so the efficacy of the vaccination uh, boosted volumes more quickly than we had all expected. And I think the second piece is how many people uh, perhaps who are not getting vaccinated um, are perfectly comfortable traveling for now. So I think 
we were all surprised by the speed with which uh, demand came back. And it came at some, yes, in some major markets, but going back to the whole theme about these truck fed locations, it also came back in locations where you have smaller labor pools. And, and sure, eventually someone could relocate. But in some of these places, the local market just doesn't supply the labor where the growth is occurring. Uh, not to mention there's, uh, you know, competition for that scarce labor with, you know, growing uh, e-commerce and all different walks of the economy. That's a really good point, John. I mean, the, the efficacy of the vaccination and the number of people who got vaccinated, you created this like surge of demand and it was almost like the unvaccinated folks just kind of tucked in behind them and kept kept it going in a way that nobody anticipated. And I know someone's going to write in and criticize any advocacy for vaccinations. That's not what this is about. But um, I, I'm not sure anyone really fully anticipated how much unvaccinated folks would get into this. Well, the one, the one thing I can say with respect to the data there, and the data is not about vaccines per se, but if you look at U.S. or at least U.S. purchased bookings, for any U.S. outbound, uh, domestic or foreign, and, and you look at uh, starting in, you know, November, December, January, it was very flat bookings, basically down sixty to sixty-five percent from the same week in 2019, and then it was very flat, and then in the second half of January, suddenly you have this obvious uptick. And we had a fairly sharp, steep slope uh, starting in the, in the second half of January through the mm, last couple of weeks where we're down about 12% in, in bookings from uh, a couple years ago. So, you know, several months in a row of down 65% and then a sudden incline that took us to down 12%. And, you know, what happened in second half of January? Well, the earnest rollout of the vaccines. Now, for other people, even if they didn't get vaccinated, maybe just the rollout gave them a general uh, confidence uh, to travel, but also it, it led to the reopening of many destinations and even venues or people having family reunions. So there was a reason to go. So let's go back to that freshman Econ 101 class mm -hmm. where everyone was learning about uh, elasticity. Airline traffic is often uh, used as a prime example of, of economics and elasticity, meaning that small changes in prices drive large changes in demand. So, John, if two major cost inputs for airlines are labor and fuel, and they continue to increase, what could that do for demand? Well, the, the other variable for demand is, is people's purchasing power. Uh, it, it's, it's their savings and their near-term cash flow or and the value of their house value of their stocks their their wealth and their inflow and right now for a lot of people that's pretty good and in fact for for higher income folks my understanding is their savings rate is higher than ever or went up during covid so there's a lot of money to be spent and and many people were also boosted or buffeted by uh, payroll protection program and, and and now child tax credits. So I think right right now what we're seeing is um, 
it's it's less elastic than for the moment than historically and it, it doesn't take quite as much of a discount to stimulate at least leisure demand you know to to address your fundamental question over time and there really is never sometimes there's a, a time lag but over time uh, yields or fares per mile have always closely tracked our unit costs directionally and if labor and fuel costs or unit costs uh, climb over the years ahead, it is likely to put upward pressure on fares. Now, the other thing, of course, is people's, their household wealth increases and their disposable per capita income increases. So it's really a race between the two, whether that results in more or less uh, travel. You know, right now we're seeing a market that is, as you said earlier, overwhelmingly leisure oriented and as the composition of that uh, returns to a better balance with with business, it'll it'll be uh, you know more favorable to the airlines. I mean, the last thing I would say is that the competitive landscape uh, shows no sign of of easing, uh, which is a good thing for consumers and I think a good thing for airlines to be as sharp as they can. And the fastest growing segment, both before COVID and I think. Uh, now is the low cost and, and especially ultra low cost carrier segment, uh, the lowest fare segment of the business. So uh, I think to a large degree that will address any concerns about upward pressure on, on labor and fuel costs. And of course, the, the major fleet orders put a, they help tamper um, some of the fuel price impacts through fuel efficiency gains. That's great insight, John. And we've been talking in this podcast about the somewhat curious timing of two new airlines starting in the U.S. now. And airlines don't start all the time here, right? It takes a long time before we get some new ones. So are you bullish or bearish on the outlook for these two new startups that we have in the U.S.? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on on predicting the success or not of, of any specific brand or, or business model. But, you know, there are some very talented people running those organizations uh, with lots of experience. And they're, those are uh, the leaders are people I would not bet against. And, you know, how it ends up uh, playing, um, I don't know. But, you know, I, I think they're doing something you know, interesting. I, I think one is is following a little more the so-called Allegiant model, and you know, doing some point-to-point flying that where there's uh, less of a competitive threat with used aircraft. And I, I think you know the others trying to largely connect medium cities in in an era where I think people will have more of an aversion to connecting via hubs than they did previously uh, with a fairly lean. Uh, labor and overhead footprint, and and also a wonderful airplane. So I think, I think their prospects are are good. You know, one of the things they're going to run against, or any new entrant runs against, is you have. It's one thing in the old days where you came in and it was just the global network carriers and a higher cost structure as your competition. Uh, now you have a very firmly nationally and even hemispherically, if that's the right word, established low cost and ultra low cost sector. So to some extent, it's harder to do something new 
or to come into a, a region of the country or region of the hemisphere that does not have that access to that kind of carrier. So I, I think that's that's the challenge. But you know, their timing on the, the sort of the upswing of the recovery is is good, and they're talented people, and I wish them luck. So, John, I couldn't let you go without asking this one last question. As a beaten down but very loyal Cleveland sports fan, how are you feeling about this Cleveland Guardians thing? <laughs> you know what? I am, as they say, loyal to the soil. Cleveland till I die. Hashtag 216. And you know what? The most important thing I'm looking for is, is a champion. I think losing the Chief Wahoo logo clearly was the right uh, decision, and, and I think it was time for the name to go. I haven't put too much thought into Guardians, but it's fine with me. They're guarding the city and the bridge that comes into it. And the most important thing is put a winning team on the field and I'll always be there to root for you. There you go. Well, look, you've been, uh, speaking of winners, you've uh, made a lot of positive and uh, correct predictions about the industry over the years. And uh, we appreciate your sharing your insight with us. And thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. And speaking of two very talented and, and seasoned folks, uh, it's hard to do uh, harder or worse than, than you and Ben. So thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks a lot, John. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Chris, that was a great conversation with John, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. And now's the part of the show where we turn the show over to our listeners. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, we heard from a couple listeners who didn't like our comments that were skeptical about the prospects for business travel this fall. Specifically, our questioning, I think it was my questioning, as to whether the reopening of many offices and workplaces after Labor Day would translate to more business traffic. In particular, Ken from New York and Nick from Washington wrote in and politely observed that we missed the point of Scott Kirby and Doug Parker's comments, or maybe we were just boneheaded. As Ken pointed out, here's the logic about the connection to business travel and workplaces reopening. For the portion of business travel involving meeting with clients, this can only be done if the clients have returned to the office. And Nick also said that reopenings would result in more intra-office business travel. So Chris, were we boneheaded and do we need to go back to school on this? Okay, I will climb into the dunk tank here to try to answer this. And you know, we just heard John Heimlich um, mention the same thing in our conversation with him. And I didn't, I thought about pushing a little bit, but it, he kind of took the conversation going and and so I let it be. But look, I, I, maybe as we were talking quickly, we missed some of what we should have been saying. Certainly office reopenings will improve business travel and the prospects for business travel. 
and the points Nick and Ken made are accurate, and I appreciate them calling us on it. I just have a couple of things here. First, or I guess second, you know, by the time we get past Labor Day, it's mid-September, and about October 15th or 20th of every year, a lot of big companies, as they're looking towards the end of the year and to make their numbers, kind of close the door on business travel for the last couple months of the year, you know, cut out discretionary business travel and and uh, pull it back. And so I, I don't think we have a long season for business travel in the back half of 2021. Uh, it's just a reality that a lot of businesses cut back on business travel. I realize that there's a pent-up demand, so maybe they'll kind of blow through that and, and in fact, keep their folks on the road through the end of the year. But as it relates to the conversations with investors, I just thought that carriers need, and I hate the term proof point, but I think they needed a couple stronger proof points than just saying the opening of offices will result in more business travel. You know, I think our friend John Heimlich needed a better proof point too. Like, what are they hearing from their top tier customers? Are are they going to increase business travel for the back half of the year? That's what I would have wanted to hear. If my staff was working on a plan to improve earned media impressions for our PR campaigns, I wouldn't want part of the plan to be, we're going to try harder. I would push them on what are the specific tactics and strategies that are going to result in success. And so I, I think that's that's the piece that you and I were most stumped on was just like, give us some better proof and give Wall Street better proof because look, everyone's rooting for you, but we need some more tangible evidence. That's a good answer, Chris. And I think what Ken and Nick pointed out is right in terms of the traffic that goes to see customers. Obviously, they have to be in the office if you're going to go visit them. And Nick added that some more intra-office business travel as well. What I keep getting back to is that the corporate traveler isn't the only one who makes the decision to take the trip. The business also has to decide to pay for the trip. And that's exactly what you just pointed out, Chris. And even though there may be a willingness because people are back in the office to increase business travel, the company still has to decide it's in our interest to pay for that travel. And I'm optimistic that will happen when it comes to generating revenue and seeing clients and build business relationships. But I'm pessimistic on that when it comes to intra-office travel and just go see your colleagues over in our second location by airplane when it's just as easy on Zoom. And so I think the issue is not, will every business traveler come back or not? People travel for business for lots of different reasons. Some of those reasons will naturally want to come back sooner than others. And I think that's really the point here. Yeah, uh, all fair. And and the points from our listeners is are, are valid, like you said. But I've been working outside the airline business for 15 years now and for multiple companies. And I have never gotten a memo in late October that said, we have lots of extra money, so go travel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it just doesn't, it's usually the exact opposite, which is time to shut down. We got to, you know, like I said, make the numbers, and uh, it doesn't involve discretionary business travel. 
So Ben, um, I'll let you take this next question. It's from Lou in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, hey guys, I was on an American Airlines flight today from DFW to Orlando. We took a 30 minute delay because the agents had to come through and verify every passenger on board with their ID and boarding pass. They kept referring to this as a quote, stroke count. They said they were missing a passenger and because people had changed seats from their assigned seats, they had no other choice but to do this by hand. I'm a million miler on two different airlines, so I consider myself a pretty educated flyer, but this looked like a clown car. The agents kept coming back on and calling out names on the PA. The captain was clearly embarrassed and irritated. The lead flight attendant said she'd been flying the airline for 35 years and had never experienced this. So how does this even happen with today's technology? I was amazed at this situation. And Lou, I think you're right to think that this was odd and certainly not normal. But I can kind of understand how it might have happened. When they were missing a passenger, there probably were ways through technology to figure out who actually had checked in and who was missing and things like that. But you didn't have your IT staff right there at the gate. And it actually might have been faster for them to get what they needed to do legally, understand who is missing. Because again, if a customer is not on a plane, but the airline has loaded their baggage on the plane, they're going to have to identify who's not on the plane and then remove that baggage. Because obviously for safety reasons, you don't want to carry the bags of someone who's not on the plane. And so my guess is, as terrible as this sounds, when they were faced with this situation of not knowing what they needed to do, they quickly made the decision that just asking everybody was going to be the fastest, not the only, but the fastest way to get it done. And I bet the crew is embarrassed. I bet American Airlines was embarrassed. I'm sure everyone on the plane like you was saying, why do they have to do this? But that's my guess as to why it happened like that. And uh, hopefully this will not happen this way on many other airplanes ever again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think your comments are spot on. And, you know, my guess is to agents are, you know, stuff happens and agents right now are just overwhelmed. When I got off uh, my flight last night at DFW, uh, there were just lines everywhere. It was 8 p.m., kind of the end of the day, and I counted. In fact, I went back and counted. No one we were going to talk about crowded airports today. There were a couple of like customer service desks where one line was uh, well over 230 people, and then about 10 gates farther down, there were another 160 people in line. And I asked one of the agents what was going on. And they said, well, you know, it's just a combination of weather and cancel flights and crews. And of course, it was the last day of the month. So they probably were having crew shortages on July 31st. So it was just a combination of things. But these agents are just overwhelmed right now. And so it was a miss. Well, Finer Wine is next, but there's not whining with Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines, which are redefining aviation with up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint. GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. 
Chris, this finer wine is from Nicholas from Jupiter, Florida. He writes, JetBlue would not honor a flight credit they provided us in March 2020. The credit expired after 365 days, and they wouldn't extend it even though they weren't flying during a significant portion of the year. Chris, is this a fine or is this a wine? Sorry, Nicholas. I think this is a wine in that I don't have your certificate, so I can't read the fine print, but most carriers did extend the value, but you had to, again, raise your hand and contact the airline before it expired and ask for the extension. It wasn't automatic. Although Delta just announced they were extending a bunch of other coupons and things into 2023, but you can't just put this away and then dust it off when you think you want to use it. It, it has some currency value and it does have an expiration date just like uh, milk in the refrigerator does. And so you got to pay attention to it before it does expire to see if it's going to be extended. And I think you just uh, got caught up in, in losing sight of that extension and then asking when it was too late. So I, I got to put this in the wine column because you had an opportunity to get it fixed and, and you missed it. I think that's the right answer, Chris. And obviously the airlines have put all these credits out there and, it's interesting. The some of the pressure in Washington right now is around for the airlines is around refunding fees if a bag isn't delivered on time, or refunding fees if Wi-Fi doesn't work on the airplanes and things. And I think that really kind of misses the reality that the biggest consumer issues affecting the industry right now are things like Nicholas's around refunds, credits, and things like that from a year where there wasn't a lot of flying to getting back to some kind of normal. Well, with that, I'm going to give my shout out as we get ready for landing. And I want to give my shout out to the small airline in Chile called JetSmart. JetSmart, for those of you who don't know, is an airline that started only in 2017. And it's a low-cost airline operating in Chile. And when you think about that and what happened with the COVID and such, you might think that, hey, is this an airline that's going to be able to survive? We all know that low-cost and ultra-low-cost airlines have done better since COVID. But my shout-out goes because they've been able to get a partnership and potential equity investment from American Airlines. Now, we've talked on this podcast that American lost LATAM to Delta, so American's clearly trying to rebuild some sort of network in Latin America to go along with their own flying out of Miami and other places. But I think this shout out to JetSmart is that in a world where small airlines are figuring out how they compete, they found a really unique way to sort of help them live through this environment and be around for the long term. Good job, JetSmart. I like that, Ben. And in the broad category of things that fly, I'm going to give my shout out to Good Morning America correspondent Will Reeve, the son of Superman, Christopher Reeve, who joined the Carnival Cruise Line Mardi Gras this past week and flew, flew literally on the first roller coaster at sea, Bolt, uh, on Mardi Gras, live on national television on Friday morning on GMA. And it was hot, and he was a trooper. Great young guy. He did a great job and we had a lot of fun with him. And so I just, I, I want to express some appreciation. I don't think he listens to Airlines Confidential, 
But for those of you who watch him, he is the real deal and a very impressive young man. So thanks to Will for joining us. With that, uh, we'll close this down. Thanks for all of you for listening to us. And thanks especially to John Heimlich for joining us this week. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.